Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Reduced Security Clearance podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on March 9th, 2018, I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host and neo-Luddite. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, this week, Frank, we greet Jeannie Lancer, who worked as an emergency room physician associate before changing course to become an award-winning investigative medical journalist. She's a former senior clinical policy analyst for the Institute of Family Health in New York and is a longtime contributor to the British Medical Journal, where she's an associate editor. Her articles, reviews, and commentary, and dear listeners, there are literally hundreds of them, have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Atlantic, The New Republic, Discover, Slate, Mother Jones, and many, many other outlets. Her first book and the subject of our chat today is The Danger Within Us, America's Untested, Unregulated Medical Device Industry, and One Man's Battle to Survive It. Great welcome to the pod, Jeannie. Hi, thanks for having me. The book starts uh, quite personally as you explain your transition from clinician to medical investigative reporter. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about that. So yes, I was working in emergency rooms uh, for years, um, and we were treating patients with serious heart irregularities uh, with certain classes of drugs that we believed were saving lives because we could see that they were actually getting rid of these bad, dangerous heartbeats. And I became fascinated when it started to become clear and studies subsequently showed that far from saving patients' lives as we thought, we were actually killing patients. And a study eventually showed that this particular class of drugs was causing 3.6 times as many patients to die as if we'd just given them a placebo or sugar pill. So um, I I was fascinated. I just wanted to know how how was it even possible for us not to see so many deaths when they were clearly happening. And that's what led me to become a medical investigative journalist. So the book's subtitle is One Man's Battle to Survive. And I was wondering if you could relate that story, the story of Dennis Fagan and his role in the story. So Dennis Fagan um, presented exactly the kind of illusion that I saw with drugs. And when he presented it to me with a device, I was shocked. Um, And what happened was Dennis has a seizure disorder and it wasn't well controlled with medicine. So he had this device implanted called a vagus nerve stimulator. It's a device that fires a little electrical impulse on the vagus nerve. And nobody knows exactly why that should stop seizures, nor is it absolutely clear that it actually does, um, because quite a few patients not only had fewer seizures, but almost as many had even more seizures. So there wasn't any clear benefit, yet it was approved by the FDA to treat epilepsy. And so he had the device implanted um, in order to control his seizures. But then instead of having fewer seizures, he started having more seizures and a different kind of seizure. In fact, he was ultimately taken to an emergency department and it was found that the device, instead of stopping his seizures, was stopping his heart. And it was appearing as if he was having more seizures. And this is what I call cure as cause. You know, here it was, we think that the drug or device we're giving someone is curing them when in fact they become the cause of the very problem we're trying to treat. So he had more seizures to some degree because he was losing consciousness since he wasn't getting enough blood to his brain because the device was stopping his heart. And the same thing with these cardiac drugs. They were reducing the visible abnormal heartbeats, but they were stopping patients' heart. 
habits. So the very thing we were trying to prevent, we were actually causing. It would actually be almost funny if it wasn't so tragic. The uh, the part of the story that you tell in which they were searching for sort of the magnetic remote control to turn <laughs> off his, uh, his yeah. VNS that with its programming wand. Exactly. And when they finally did turn it off, of course, his seizure stopped immediately. Yet despite that, despite the fact that the seizure stopped and, and his heart rate came back to normal, and I should back up and mention one of the things that was so dramatic and made his emergency doctor remember him above any other patient he said that he treated in 30 years was that his heart was stopping at precisely three-minute intervals, which was totally bizarre and inexplicable until he found out that he had this vagus nerve stimulator and that it was set to fire at exactly three-minute intervals. So he, they turn it off, his, his seizure stopped, the episodes with his heart go back to normal, and yet the device manufacturer claimed that it was unaware of anything that should say that the device itself was at fault. And then Dennis almost becomes your sort of co-investigator, doesn't he? He sure did. He opened my eyes to a couple things. And, and, and one of the things that really shocked me at first, I was most concerned about the, the cardiac asystole, meaning the heart stops altogether. And, and if he had not been a young, healthy, trained firefighter, you know, who had a good, healthy heart, it's quite possible that somebody, you know, less strong, their heart might not have come back. And in fact, that's what the ER doctor was afraid of when he saw Fagan's heart stop. He thumped him on the chest with his fist, trying to bring him back to life, very fearful he wasn't going to be able to bring him back to life. Um, so, And his heart had stopped so many times that had it gone on any longer, uh, the doctor was fearful that it would be, you know, he, he wouldn't be able to bring him back to life. So, you know, Dennis taught me something, though. I was totally focused on the heart stopping. And Dennis said, yeah, but, you know, I was having more seizures as well. And how do we know whether the device was causing seizures or stopping seizures? And I thought, well, seizures, that's not as important as your heart stopping. But eventually, I really began to realize that this was the whole problem of illusion that really caught my attention in medicine in the first place. And what I found in the course of my history as a clinical provider, but also especially in writing this book, how widespread and common this problem is. How patients and doctors alike tend to say that whenever they get better after a treatment, it must be because of the treatment. When in fact, many people were going to get better anyway. And whenever they get worse, they blame the underlying disease, not the treatment. And how do we tell the difference? That fascinated me. That is such a great uh, frame for the project. And I really like the way in which you, know, you introduce people to some pretty technical issues through the lens of this one very difficult situation for one patient. Um, I, I'm really obsessed with the data angle here. Um, I've done a lot of work on data. And one thing that I noticed in your in the book is that you know that the problem is that reporting is voluntary yes. of, these, of these events. You know, Although manufacturers and facilities are required to report serious adverse events, doctors and other healthcare providers aren't required to do so. And then one of the biggest problems is, you know, who decides whether a device caused or contributed to a serious complication or death? The FDA is leaving that up to the manufacturer, right? Exactly. And that just seems so troubling. And, and how did we get to that sort of place? Well, it's a, an obvious and glaring conflict of interest to allow the manufacturer to decide whether something caused or contributed to a death. I mean, just imagine how different the reporting database would be if we left it to the patient's doctor or to the patients themselves. But in 
instead we leave it to industry with a clear vested interest and often millions and millions of dollars riding on the outcomes. Um, but the way that it was described to me when I asked, why in heaven's name do we do this? Um, I was told that the re- rationale behind allowing the manufacturer to decide was that the manufacturers receive thousands and thousands of reports, millions of reports actually. And if every patient who dies on a hospital stretcher was reported as a device failure, um, it would be useless uh, and burdensome information. And they're right, it would be because it's almost never the device, the stretcher that causes a patient to die unless it collapses maybe and they fall downstairs. But basically, patients die on stretchers and it's irrelevant. The problem is obvious, though, that leaving this to the manufacturer creates a real conflict of interest. But it also isn't something that should necessarily even be adjudicated in the first place. Because how does one tell whether a patient's particular seizure was caused by a device or a pill or whether it was actually relieved, you know, that they're having less. Um, I'll give you an example. With Vioxx, uh, it's estimated that 60,000 excess patients die, excess deaths occurred um, because of people taking Vioxx, and excess meaning compared to patients with similar conditions taking a different drug. So there were 60,000 cardiovascular deaths uh, attributed to Vioxx. Well, who took Vioxx? It was a painkiller often used for arthritis, and it was often taken by older people who were in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, how do we know that one individual who died of a heart attack wasn't just going to die anyway? The only real way to tell is not to try to adjudicate an individual patient, but to do proper studies. And that's where I come back to the issue of mandatory reporting and proper clinical trials, which we're not doing. And in other countries, they have mandatory registries for certain devices, and they've been able to uncover problems long before we have in the United States. You spend a section of the book talking about regulatory capture and how this uh, impacts uh, device safety. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Regulatory capture plays out in every aspect of the way the FDA um, approves, monitors, regulates drugs, um, everything from their bowing to industry um, when industry is unhappy with rejections of their devices. And I'll give one example, Meniflex, <laughs> poster child for um, unbelievable interference by industry. So FDA's own scientists declined to approve this knee implant, um, unanimously saying it wasn't good and it wasn't safe and it failed far too often. And um, they rejected it uh, several times. And the manufacturer, of course, was not happy with this outcome. And some phone calls were made from legislators who just happened to be living in the state where Meniflex was manufactured. And they, those legislators in Congress made calls to FDA managers and suddenly Meniflex was approved. But before it was approved, uh, the manufacturer made several demands. One of the demands was that they recuse all of their own scientists, that FDA had to recuse their own scientists because the manufacturer said they were biased. And they gave them a list of people they wanted included on the new c- uh, panel to consider approval of the device. And one of the people that they recommended was the CEO of the manufacturer of Meniflex, and indeed, who was put on the panel by FDA, the CEO of the manufacturer that made Meniflex. I mean, it's just incredible. Another example has to do with the preemption ruling. That was a 2008 uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, in Regal v. Medtronic, in which the Supreme Court 
ruled that if a device is approved by the FDA and it functions as intended, patients can't sue the manufacturer. Well, many devices function as intended and still kill people, and they may be bad devices. And the FDA had always supported the right of patients to sue, saying that this was an important protection for the public to learn about problems um, and for patients to be able to get redress. Well, it turns out that what does this have to do with regulatory capture? Well, Dan Troy was an industry attorney who was hired into the FDA. This is a case of the revolving door. And he's hired into the FDA. And what does he do while he's at the FDA? He tells industry, bring me your cases. Let me help get this passed. And he files a friend of the court brief on behalf of the preemption rule. And after that's passed, he goes back to to, uh, industry side. So regulatory capture plays out across the whole array of things that happen at the FDA, and it's playing out now. Uh, The FDA participated in secret meetings with AdvaMed, the trade group that represents um, the device industry, and they participated in crafting legislation that lowers the bar of scientific evidence needed to approve devices. Do you think that the device risk problem in terms of of um, lack of remedies for 501ks when when there's been an injury in terms of the data reporting that Frank discussed. Do you think that in, in the device context, this is more important because of the relatively low bar for pre-marketing examination of devices compared to drugs? Well, I have to laugh at the idea of uh, relatively low bar. I was talking with Diana Zuckerman, who is uh, the head of the National Center for Health Research, who's done a lot of work on devices. And when 21st Century Cures Act came along, lowering the bar, her reaction was, how can they lower the bar? It's already in the ground. I mean, it's a no bar 510k. So let me explain that. So uh, while drugs came under the regulatory authority of FDA back in the 30s, uh, medical devices didn't come under the purview of FDA until 1976. And at that point, there were already all kinds of devices on the market, pacemakers, nerve stimulators, all sorts of things. And so what the FDA did was to say, you know, okay, you guys, you're already all on the market. We're going to grandfather you all in. Now, there was no clinical data required for these devices that were now grandfathered in and allowed to remain on the market. Um, And then what they did is they said, and you manufacturers, if you want to produce new devices, and you want them to be approved and you can name a device that's already on the market that's a quote predicate device that is um, substantially equivalent to the device you want to put out then just tell us and they don't quote approve it they quote clear it so most devices are cleared not approved and the danger of that is that um, two-thirds of let me see I've forgotten the numbers I can have to glance here yeah three-quarters of devices that have been um, withdrawn because of class one offenses. Now, a class one recall, as defined by the FDA, means there's a reasonable probability, not a possibility, probability that the device will 
cause serious health complications or death. So this is the highest risk of harm. And yet three quarters of the devices recalled under that class one highest harm were actually cleared by the 510k pathway. The 510k pathway clearly, because of the way this all occurred historically, have never been proven to be safe or effective. And in fact, the Institute of Medicine, when they did a study of it, um, and when um, the Supreme Court assessed the situation, both the IOM and the Supreme Court indicated that there was no assurance of safety or efficacy of any of the devices that are on the market through 510K. And in fact, the Institute of Medicine said the problem is so severe, it can't be fixed. We need to scrap the entire system. So 510K, it needs to go. Yeah, I really think that it's very helpful to have uh, the big picture view because in our world, so much of the attention of academics is usually to relatively small bore um, efforts to reform aspects of processes like 510K. And I think one of the real achievements of your book is to give the big picture and to say, maybe the overall structure is deeply troubling and needs to be reevaluated from its foundations. In that vein, I was wondering if you could describe the travails of the FDA-9, because I think that the it was something I remember following like 10 years ago and just being kind of shocked at how various people who wanted to be whistleblowers were treated quite shabbily, uh, more than shabbily. And, uh, and, and it was stood to me as a sort of warning to folks throughout government that good faith, even very good faith efforts to improve the agencies they worked in could lead to uh, retribution uh, that would severely adversely affect their careers. A lot of people don't know or don't remember DeviceGate, but what DeviceGate was, um, was an event when it was originally about 12 uh, FDA scientists got together um, because they were growing increasingly frustrated uh, with exactly the kind of situation I described with Meniflex. They had uh, unanimously recommended against approval of several devices, including the vagus nerve stimulator for depression and um, and one of the mammography machines. Um, and I forget what other devices they had unanimously recommended against, but were overruled by managers. And they were growing so frustrated, uh, feeling that political interference rather than scientific evidence was playing a role in these approvals, that um, they contacted members of Congress trying to get some help. And they also eventually went to the media. And the FDA, rather than, of course, thanking these scientists for their work to protect the public health and safety, um, promptly put spyware on their computers to track every single computer stroke, keystroke these guys made, and started harassing them and ultimately fired a bunch of them. I'm not sure if they fired all of the nine, but eventually nine of them stuck together for um, a lawsuit. And the FDA had been told repeatedly, and I forget who it was, but it was some kind of, um, do you remember who it was, but it was some kind of investigative uh, arm of government that kept telling the FDA, look, this is their right to go to the media and to Congress. They have the right to make these communications. You can't just fire them. And nonetheless, FDA did everything they could to, to make everybody's life impossible and to find ways to fire them. So it, it's, it is pretty scary. And in fact, in my years of reporting, and I've been doing it for 20 years or so, um, it's really changed. I mean, people at FDA now, 
now are scared witless to talk to journalists, and they won't talk um, unless they are what people don't realize. A lot of our interviews are, quote, chaperoned. That means that there's a minder at FDA who listens in to these talks. Now, you might think, well, what's the difference if they listen in? And if they're going to say something that you're going to publish, their minders are going to know. The difference is if you're on a phone call or in a private interview with an FDA scientist, they can tell you, look, I can't come out and say this because I'll get fired because FDA doesn't want this known. But you can look up this information and you can go to so-and-so and find out about this. And that has been lost. We don't have that anymore because they have minders. That is very disturbing, Jeannie, with respect to the treatment of the FDA-9 and the minders. Um, and I think that's you know one reason why we see groups like the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting training reporters in pretty good privacy or some other you know efforts to encrypt messages from sources, because it seems like increasingly we're going to need to have that level of security just for communications about um, what's going on inside some of these firms. Absolutely. Let's move on to the very final chapter of the book, which is subtitled, What is to be Done? And um, given the first 10 chapters, I was kind of expecting that that final chapter would be a sort of a detailed dismemberment of food and drug law, FDA law, uh, and suggestions for change. But in fact, you take a much bigger picture approach, I I would suggest, in that final chapter. So I wondered if you'd give us a, a, a few bullets as to what should be done. So I did look at the issue of campaign finance reform and say, ultimately, we need politicians whose war chests aren't lined with money from industry and who are basically the puppets of industry to a large degree. Um, Because, you know, the the Meniflex thing wasn't an exception to the rule. It's happening far more frequently now, um, as one FDA insider told me, than ever before. Um, So it's becoming an increasing problem, and I don't see how we can solve it if we don't solve that problem, which needs to be solved for many other reasons besides healthcare anyway. Um, another issue is the role of patents and patent trolls um, and the abuse of patents. So everybody knows that we typically see drug manufacturers coming out with a new drug uh, the day before their old drug is to go off patent. Now, is that just happy coincidence or is it because they want to keep patent prices? And in fact, what we find is that's driving an awful lot of quote, Me Too drugs where they make a, a slight modification. The same is true, sadly, for devices. Think of your computer. I mean, our computers become obsolete after two years. Well, the same thing's going on with medical devices. They are increasingly computerized, Wi-Fi enabled, uh, transmitting impulses, uh, not only across the room, but across miles. Um, And they're coming up with new software continuously for these devices and implanting them. Think about the uh, iPhone battery debacle. Um, Well, the same thing's going on with them. the vagus nerve stimulator and other devices where batteries can cost upwards of $15,000 a pop. And one device rep found that the company was doing what they call churning. And churning is when you simply tell the doctor, because it's the device reps who go in and test these devices and say, oops, this battery is about to run out. Well, the battery isn't supposed to run out for 10 years, but gee whiz, it's running out every two years, according to the device rep, because they're churning, they're making profits by doing this. Well, the doctor doesn't know any better. They're not the ones who know how to work the equipment to figure out what's going on with the battery necessarily. Um, And if they do, some of them are getting a cut anyway because they're implanting them. So yeah, um, I think we need to look at some of these bigger picture issues if we're ever going to get where we want to be. Clearly, you know, taking um, 
ending or reversing the Supreme Court ruling on preemption is is another issue that needs to be looked at. And finally, a, a single payer or universal health care system, I think, could take away a number of the perverse incentives. You know, I once looked at going into practice myself, which PAs can do, and I looked at the cost of setting up a practice and what it would cost to do this and that. And all of a sudden, I found myself calculating in my head, well, how many EKGs do I have to run a week in order to break even on the machine? And I thought, oh my God, I'm not thinking about what's the best health care intervention. I'm thinking about how am I going to stay alive financially? And I just dropped the whole project right then and there and thought, I never want to make money the consideration when a patient's sitting in front of me. I don't want to make more and I don't want to make less based on my decisions. The only consideration I want in front of me is what I think is actually right for that patient. You know, we have these perverse incentives in both directions now. So yeah, I look at that and say, um, these are some big picture changes we could make that could improve our outcomes. And that was our Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Jeannie Lenser for joining us. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Jeannie Lenser one J-E-A-N-N-E-L-E-N-Z-E-R-1. And you can find links to her very many publications on JeannieLenser.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We post our show notes at Tor.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, Frank. And I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.